Uh, Psalms 26. Um, uh, let's see. Um, of David, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I will walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not stand with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go round your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I, have the habitation of your, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. I do not sweep my soul away with, swinners, with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But for me, but as for me, I will walk in your integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me, and my foot stands on level ground. In the assembly, I will bless the Lord. Hello, everybody. So like he said, my name is Peter Hodges. I'm an elder candidate here at uh, Bayless Baptist Church. What that means is that um, we have a pastoral team of three pastors, Evan, John, and Larry, and they're asking me to, um, or considering asking me, I should say, to come alongside them as they lead and direct the church and to kind of lead and direct with them. And part of that leading and directing is what we're doing right now, uh, opening up, going through chapter by chapter through the scriptures and seeing what they have to say for themselves. And the reason I'm considering this is this is kind of what I love doing. Um, I love opening up the Bible and seeing what it says on its own terms and what it's been saying for the last few centuries. Uh, I grew up in church, but to be perfectly candid, the picture that I kind of picked up of the mission of the church and the claims of Jesus was a little flat and boring. It, uh, it wasn't until I started a journey of reading the Bible for myself and seeing what its claims were that it started to come alive for me. And m with that, my entire view of what the church was, what the scripture said, and who Jesus was, all of that changed in a very fundamental way. And if I could give like an explanation of that, so sitting down there, it's my beautiful wife, Stephanie. Um, how we got together is a very, very long story, but a small piece of that story is on the first day of our dating relationship, in the first hours of us kind of even considering this question of, you know, are we going to do this, we're going to get married, I told her everything I could think of, every reason I could come up with. Am I on over there? All right. I might have to hold this in my hand because I think my pocket just muted. Hello there? Okay, there we go. So, I'll try this one more time and I'll hold it in my hand if it doesn't work. So, right, Stephanie. That's where I was. So, I told her everything I could think of to talk her out of marrying me, out of dating me. I said, you know, this is what I've dealt with in the past. This is what I've wrestled with in the present. This is what I'm afraid of in the future. And I don't recommend doing it that way and I definitely don't recommend doing it that early. But, the reason I did that on purpose was I wanted her to know me. I wanted her to consider me. If there was any reason that she wouldn't want to be married to me, I wanted her to know that before she was married to me. And so, and I kind of bring that up because that level of focus caused us, we were talking about this, 
to get to know each other better in a few weeks than we'd known even some of our closest friends in years because we were asking a very serious question. We were asking, do we want to do this? Do we want to give ourselves publicly, permanently to each other? And I kind of bring that up because that's a lot of what's going on in Psalm 26. As we're looking at Psalm 26, we're going to be looking at what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be one of God's people, what it means to be in relationship with the God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in that. And I think a lot of people in the church or outside of the church reject and dismiss Christianity without actually knowing what they're rejecting and dismissing. I also think a lot of people, even within the church, accept and affirm Christianity without actually knowing what, they're ex- what they are accepting and affirming. And I don't want that to be you. If you reject it, I want you to reject the claims that the Bible actually makes. And if you accept it, I want you to accept and affirm the claims the Bible actually makes, not bullet points that someone else told you. Even the most trustworthy teachers, because I'm not saying this all to dump on the teachers that I had growing up. Even the most trustworthy teachers, if all you have is what they gave you, then you don't really understand. You don't have a full picture. Like, if somebody tells you what Niagara Falls looks like, sounds like, smells like, maybe everything they tell you is true. Maybe they've even been there. But just because they've been there doesn't mean that you have. Don't accept or reject a picture that somebody else paints. Accept or reject the real person of Jesus. So, what does Psalm 26 say about all of this? We're going to see a few things in the psalm, and they're actually all packed into the first verse about what a relationship with God is, what it's like to have a relationship with the God of Israel. So for you note-takers, we're going to see, I think, that this is a confusing relationship. This is a covenant relationship. It's a committed relationship, and ultimately... It's a confident relationship. And I'm, I'm excited if you read that and you say, yes, absolutely, I completely agree. If you're reading that and that doesn't quite resonate, then maybe we can take a fresh look at what it actually means to be a Christian. Because I don't want you to accept or reject somebody else's picture. I want you to accept, accept or reject who he really is. Bit of business before we get started. Because I love studying the Bible for myself, not a huge fan of listening to other people. Uh, I like having tools to study the Bible for myself. So one of the tools I've picked up over the years is what I'm going to call mountaintop psalms. When you're in the book of Psalms, several of them are what I would call a mountaintop psalm. It's not the technical term. But they kind of like a story or most movies you would watch. They kind of, for the first half, build up. And they hit a point, no pun intended, of what the psalm is actually getting at. So if you're into sports movies, the midpoint of a sports movie is probably where the team actually first comes together as a team. Or superhero origin stories, it's where Batman really is the first time becomes Batman. Or Wonder Woman, for the first time, that's really Wonder Woman. Everything that the movie is about is packed into that midpoint scene. And for these mountaintop psalms, and Psalm 26 is one of them, for these mountaintop psalms, everything that psalm is about is packed into that middle verse, or that was middle two verses. 
So keep your Bibles open. We're going to hit every single verse in this psalm, but we're going to emphasize the first verse and the middle two. The first verse is the base of the mountain. From that, you can see the whole mountain. It's going to sow seeds that are going to kind of grow up throughout the whole psalm. And then the sixth verse is the peak of the mountain. This is what the psalm is really about. That's where I'm going to get really excited. So verse 1, it's the base of the mountain. You see the whole mountain. Verse 6, you're on top of the mountain and you see a whole lot more. So Psalm 26.1, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in you without wavering. Let's just stop here. How does that strike you? I mean, this is the song book of the Bible. This is the prayer book of the Bible. Can you picture raising your voice to sing or bowing your knees to pray those words? Part of what I was saying in that intro was, yeah, growing up, nobody told me about this. Nobody suggested I pray like that. And yet we're going to see that so much of this chapter in general and of this verse in particular is summarizing what it is like to be one of God's people. So, there's two things about this that would make this somewhat confusing. It might, might make it confusing for you, and honestly, it would be confusing for just about anybody who read it back in the day when it was written. Two things that would make this confusing. One would be the surrounding circumstances the writer's in. The second would be the surrounding culture. We don't know a whole lot about their surrounding circumstances. All we know is that they're not good. And how do we know that they're not good? by the simple fact that he is asking for vindication. Because, oops, what does it mean to be vindicated? When you're saying, I am vindicated, you're saying, I was right the whole time, even though it didn't always look like it. And so, just because you don't ask for water unless you're thirsty, you don't ask for food unless you're hungry, and you don't say, vindicate me, rule in my favor, show that I'm right, unless you currently look like you're questionable, unless you currently look like you're wrong, unless you currently look like you're failing. As this writer is writing this, he's assuming a couple of things. He's assuming that God is in charge and has the power to vindicate him. And you know this because no matter how tight the money is, you don't ask your nine-year-old to help you cover the mortgage. As much money as you might need, nine-year-old doesn't have the power to do it, and so if he's praying to God for vindication, he's saying, you have the power. You are judge on high and you can do this. He's also saying that God is just and has interest in vindicating him. He's claiming that he's walking in his integrity. And so he's saying that God has reason to vindicate him. And if that trips you up, we're going to get more on that later. But for all of this, all these good reasons, God has yet to vindicate him. For whatever reason, the writers who write this and the singers who sing this do not currently look like they're on the right path. They look like they're wrong, but they know they're right. They look like they failed, but they know that they haven't. Some of you, if you know the story of Job, it's like that. Job's friends would say, God is punishing you. Job said, no, it's not that. I don't know what he's doing, but I know it is not that. And as remarkable as this might seem to us, 
it would be even more remarkable in that surrounding culture. Back in that day, Israel's national neighbors, they weren't singing this. They weren't singing anything like this because if you did not worship the God of Israel, you did not pray like this. Here's an example of how you did pray. We call this the prayer to every God. This is not in your Bible, nor should it be, because you'll see why in a minute. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted toward me. May the God who is not known be quieted toward me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted toward me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. The transgression which I have committed, indeed I do not know. The sin which I have done, indeed I do not know. The psalm actually goes on a lot, this song actually goes on a lot longer, but you get the basic point. The writer is in a similar situation. They're in pain. Things are not going their way. So they're crying out to someone. They don't even know who. And they're saying, I don't know who you are or what you want or what I did to make you mad, but I'm sorry. Please stop hurting me. I, I don't know what the rules are, but apparently I broke all of them. And that may sound kind of funny, but the modern equivalent of that would be to face adversity, to face defeat, and to say, well, I don't know what I did to deserve this, or I don't know why, but I think God's mad at me. Psalm 26 does not paint God as someone who is punishing you. Psalm 26 is singing with desperation and with confidence to God, and it's saying, I know you, and I know what you call for, and I know I've done it. And I know you're in control of what's happening to me right now. And I don't know why you're doing this, but you can be trusted. And I'm going to wait because I know you're strong and I know you're trusted. So I'm going to keep following after you and I'm going to wait and I'm going to worship until you prove it. And the reason he has this confidence, even in this confusing times, is because his relationship is not based on what's, how he feels here and now. It's based on what God did there and then. This confusing relationship is a covenant relationship. Part of the reason I talked about Stephanie earlier was because in America, we don't have a whole lot of covenants. We have a lot of contracts. We don't have a whole lot of covenants. A covenant is a public, personal, permanent pledge to someone else. The only kind of covenant we still have these days is a marriage. So if you've been to a wedding, you've seen two people publicly, permanently pledge themselves to each other. When I use the word covenant, I'm talking about that. And the reason I'm using the word covenant is because to a degree the psalmist does. When he says, vindicate me, O Lord, because I've trusted in the Lord without wavering, he sows that seed that gets developed a couple verses later in verse 3. He says, your steadfast love is before my eyes. Something I learned from a good pastor friend of mine is that that word steadfast love, it's one word in Hebrew. It's this kind of word called hesed. It's hard to translate because there's so much packed in it. It's basically two ideas, covenant, love. And this covenant love is arguably the most celebrated aspect of God in the Old Testament. And when the writer sings your steadfast love is before my eyes, he's saying, he's pointing back to a specific moment. In the Old Testament, this, 
the second book of your Bible, the book of Exodus, God looks down and he sees the people of Israel in bitter slavery in Egypt. And for no other reason than them crying out to him, he comes down, devastates Egypt with a series of plagues and brings his people out. And that's the backstory here. When he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, there's our key word, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, remember that word, priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then this goes through that Ten Commandments come next, and God gives a lot of his commands. And they say, all the, the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And that is God's covenant. I saved you at your worst. I saved you when you had nothing to offer. And so, in Psalm 26.3, when he says that your steadfast love is before my eyes, he's got that moment in mind. He's looking back at that moment. He's looking back at God's covenant love, which brought the people of Israel out on eagles' wings that said, I identified with you when you were slaves. And he's saying, that covenant love is before my eyes. Those historical realities are the lenses that I see everything through. Elsewhere in the Bible, God would say, you were slaves in Egypt, and I delivered you. Let that affect how you treat your servants. You were strangers in Egypt, and I prospered you. Not prospered. You were strangers in Egypt, and I saved you. Let that affect how you treat the immigrant. You were poor in Egypt, and I prospered you. Let that color and shape how you view the poor. And because of this covenant relationship, there is no such thing as a covenant that is not committed. Because it's a covenant relationship, it is a committed relationship. So when he says, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, some of you might have been wondering about this part, what that word integrity means much like it means today, is this whole person committedness. The psalm kind of spells this out in about three different realms. It's going to be talking about public identity, private actions, and personal thoughts. We're going to go through these one by one. Public identity, this is the longest one because it's the one that makes the least sense to us as Americans. In America, we have very loose relationships, and so I need to kind of just spell out for us what the psalmist would assume in, in his context. If in our context, your identity is generally in your accomplishments, it's what you can do. In ancient cultures, your identity was in your relationships. Who you were was whose you were. If any of you have been in the military, you're probably going to understand this the best. Thank you for your service, by the way. In the military, in basic training and elsewhere, if somebody does something wrong, everybody does push-ups. And the reason for that sort of communal mindset in the military is the same as that mindset in the ancient cultures. Because in both cases, they lived in very hostile environments. So they were deeply dependent 
on each other. Who you identify with was not a matter of personal preference. It was a matter of life and death. Because if you did something wrong, someone else may have to die. And so, that's why the language is so strong here. In verses 4 and 5 when he says, I do not sit with men of falsehood nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. It's common for people to say, you know, well, I don't hate anybody. But uncomfortably enough, the Bible doesn't actually have that sentiment in it. The Bible talks about great, costly, covenantal love. And you do not love anything deeply unless you hate its enemy. I love my family very much. If somebody comes into my house with a gun and threatens them, whatever happens after that, nobody's going to look back and say, Peter loved everyone in that room equally. And so, we read in, verse, in Psalm 5, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Uh, another popular phrase that you've heard that you need to be careful with is the phrase, love the sinner and hate the sin. That phrase is not actually in the Bible. Um, the Bible says God hates the wicked. And it doesn't just say this crashes against our comforts, but... This is what the Bible unapologetically says, not just here. Paul here says, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from among them. Touch not the unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? There are two categories. The people of God and the enemies of God. It's true in Psalm 26. It's true in the rest of the Bible. There's not a third or fourth or fifth category that you can be in. There's two categories. Which category are you in? Which uniform are you wearing? Because when the Bible talks about identifying, it's not saying, I sit in a room with them once a week and I know some of their names. It's saying I live with them and die with them. They're not my associates. They're my brothers. What are, you, what are you doing for your church family that you're covenantally committed to? We signed a church covenant. What are you doing for your church family that you're covenanted to, that you've identified with, to serve them, to pray for them? Now, are you going to do that perfectly? No. But you love Christ by loving the people that Christ died for by identifying with people that God identified with. Next, we're going to talk private actions. As we read Psalm 26.1 saying, you know, vindicate me because I've walked in my integrity, there's sort of this knee-jerk reaction uh, looking back saying, well, I wouldn't say that, you know. Christ died for my sins. But the psalmist talks about this. He also gives another example in Psalm 26.10. He says that, well, I, I don't take a bribe. And I kind of stuttered there, but the psalmist is not stuttering. He's saying all of the things that characterize him. Because it's true, Christ did die for our sins. But Christ does not save part of anyone. 
If Christ saved you, Christ saved all of you, not just a few hours of your week. Christ died for your sins, but he did not die to enable them. Again, Paul writes to the Corinthians, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He explains, but he does not qualify. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you exploit people in business? That's what the word swindlers means there. Don't be so sure that you're a Christian. Are you obsessed with money? Then ask yourself who your real Lord is. There's another pastor who's commenting on this. Uh, he is talking about the sexual immorality part, but you could say that about any part of that verse. He said, when you have sex outside of marriage, it's not like you're just breaking the rules to get into heaven. It's the same thing as slander. It's the same thing as materialism. It's the same thing as all these other things. You're putting your own selfish individual needs over the importance of building community, and as a result of that, if you're living like that, it doesn't say that you're not necessarily a Christian, but you should lose all assurance that you are a Christian. You should lose all assurance if you see yourself doing these things habitually. Because if God is really in his Holy Spirit working in your life to prepare you for the future kingdom of God, then you won't do those things. Lastly, we're going to talk about personal thoughts. This may be true for some of you, um, that you're active members of the church and in your private actions, you don't have anything that you'd really be embarrassed to be made public but you still, may, you still may have a problem. And that problem would be, in the words of Psalm 26.3, that your, his steadfast love is not before your eyes. Your worldview is not through his person and work. And I don't want to like over-absolutize this. I'll kind of explain what I mean. So like, for me in my life, um, I think about a lot of things. I might be thinking about the chess game that I just won or lost. I might be thinking about the thing at work that I just succeeded or failed at. I might be thinking about how beautiful my wife is, or I might be wishing that she'd wake up already and get off of my arm. I think about a lot of things. But one of those things that I think about often is, especially, I use the words now because I've been reading the psalm, how do I see the world through God's steadfast love? How do... How do I love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to present her spotless and blameless with the washing of the water of the word? How do I raise my kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? How do I work for my company heartily as unto the Lord? Now, do I do this perfectly? No. Do I have blind spots? Yes. Do I know what they are? If I did, they would not be blind spots. But nevertheless, I ask myself, and I use the words now because I've been using, I've been reading Psalm 26, I use the words, prove me, O Lord, try me, test my heart and my mind. Because when the psalmist says, when the psalmist says, vindicate me, O Lord, for I walk in my integrity, when he says, vindicate me, O Lord, for I walk in my integrity, and that is you. <clears throat> It'll come to me. In your steadfast love, no, no, no. And I trust in you without failing. Prove me, O Lord, and test me. Try my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I have walked in your faithfulness. 
I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of the evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. He's saying, I know which team I'm on. I'm on your team. In my personal thoughts, my private actions, my public identity, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, I am yours. And that is the confidence that allows him to say, I wash my hands in innocence. But I have to be careful here because for some of you, I've just given you a to-do list in the worst possible sense of the word. Some of you might be asking, okay, you know, am I, am I serving people in the church enough? Am I thinking enough about what it means to be a Christian after the last week or the last month? How could I possibly say I wash my hands in innocence after I lost my temper with my kid yesterday? Here's how. Because you don't wash your hands because they're clean. You wash your hands because they're dirty. You don't wash your hands because of the life that you've lived. You wash your hands because of the blood that was shed. He says, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous works. And if you don't know why I'm starting to get a little bit excited, it's probably because you don't know what an altar is. This is the mountaintop of the psalm. This is what everyone is, every verse has been pointing to. They've been building toward this. Everything before it is building toward it. Everything after it is going to unfold from it. Because this is what he's talking about. Remember I said, remember the priest word and the covenant? The psalmist is writing like a priest. Because a priest in the tabernacle would go, and the very first thing that you did is you would go to the altar, you'd sacrifice an animal, you would shed that blood. Then you'd go around the altar, sprinkling that blood on the altar. Then and only then do you go to the basin and wash your hands. And then and only then do you go into the holy place. And what the writer only saw shadows of, we can see in full. Because the writer knew that God made a tabernacle where blood was shed to make his people clean. But centuries later, God came as the perfect tabernacle. Because God does not just disapprove of sin, but hates it, who you identify with is a matter of life and death. And and because you did something wrong, someone else has to die. And Jesus said, I'll do it who you identify with is a matter of life and death. I will identify with you. I will take your death. You identify with me. You take my life. And this is the covenant that we're a part of. Regardless of our surrounding circumstances or our surrounding culture, this is what affects how we see and how we walk. This is the song that our public actions, our private, that our public identity, our private actions, and our personal thoughts are singing. Because he didn't just identify with us. He was vindicated for us. Friday on the cross, he took our death. He suffered and died. And if that is all that you have, you have defeat. Saturday, he's in the grave. And where are the disciples? 
They're discouraged. They're defeated. They've given their lives to this man, and by all appearances, they've given their lives for nothing. But what happened on Sunday morning? Sunday morning, bright and early, they are vindicated. Mary throws her arms around a risen Lord. Peter and John are running to an empty tomb. And two confused travelers saying, we don't know what happens. We don't know what happens. We thought he was going to be the one to redeem all Israel. And Jesus said, all that was written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. I said I was coming and I came. I said I would die. Here I am. I said I was the resurrection and the life, and I am vindicated. Moses, vindicated. David, vindicated. The prophets, the people of God. Everyone who said I was coming, I came, I conquered, and I am vindicated. And because I am vindicated, so are you, and so shall you ultimately be. On that day, our thoughts will be totally his. Our actions will be totally his. Our identities will be fully and totally his. Don't you see? This is why we identify with him fully and completely because he identified with us fully and completely. We think of him because we first thought of us. We give our lives to him because he first gave our lives to us. And this is the song that our public identity, our private actions, and our personal thoughts are singing. They're singing, this is what my Savior does. A rebel and a slave I was. Not caring what he had to say. I cursed at him and went my way. I could not, would not seek his face. And so he came to take my place. The king of kings, he left his throne. He called the least of these his own. Identified with me and gave himself to die as rebel slave. Blind no more, at last I see. His blood was shed, was shed by me. And yet, my evil, he withstood and made it all to work for good. Not sure I need the mic at this point, but... Am I good or did I turn it off? It's one switch. All right, there we are. And it doesn't say which one. His blood has met his law's demands. His innocence has washed my hands. This is why Jesus is the perfect house that we love wherein God's glory dwells. This is why we have confidence that we will not be swept away with the bloodthirsty and the wicked. They will be swept away, but we will not be swept away with them because we are already in him. So that on that day, our actions be fully his, our thoughts be fully his, and we don't know what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like him because we have seen him as he is. But I don't want to oversell it because that day is not this day. I don't know who comes to your mind when you think of the wicked or the bloodthirsty, but they probably haven't been swept away yet. The kingdoms of this world have not yet become the kingdoms of our God. And we don't know why. We know he has the power. We know he has the interest. We know because of Jesus he is able, but we know he has not fully yet. We don't know why, but we trust him. And so we wait. As we wait, we walk. We walk in our integrity, and as we wait, 
we pray. Redeem us, O Lord, and be gracious unto us. Be merciful to us in this great assembly, and one day in that great assembly, we will bless the Lord. Let us pray. This anthem that we sing, it is our victory cry. You died that we may live, you live that death, that death may die. God, you are our vindication. May our thoughts, our actions, and our identities be seen through the lens of your loving kindness. Vindicate us, O Lord, as we walk in our integrity. Redeem us, O Lord, and be merciful to us.